Welcome back to P.S. Spooky Shiz. This is the first episode since the name change. It still represents paranormal stories and spooky shiz, just like always. I've just shortened it down to a catchier name, P.S. Spooky Shiz. Alright, so with that, let's open our inaugural episode um, with some asylums and stories from the asylums to spook you out. Alright. Let's get started and go through the spooky stories. All right. Today we're going to start at India Times, where they have an article, Most Terrifying Haunted Asylum Stories That Will Spook You Real Bad. It is sad that people get spooked out just by visiting mental asylums or even spotting mentally challenged or differently abled beings. Abandoned asylums don't need ghosts to make them creepy, cages for humans, ruins of uncertain treatments, and ice pick lobotomies do the job just fine. It is but obvious that any mental institution is bound to be emitting bad vibes, but a haunted former asylum? Well now that's something that's not just running the, a chill down your spine, but also make you go sleepless at night. Danvers Lunatic Asylum Massachusetts. Opened in the year 1878, Danvers Lunatic Asylum not only housed mentally challenged beings, but also was a prison for sinners who were mentally unstable. Imagine a house full of lunatics who have been accused of some gruesome crimes and are also madcaps. The number of admissions in the asylum increased so much that the hospital became understaffed and the deaths went so frequent and unnoticed, the staff discovered bodies of the prisoners only when they started to rot. Anjime Psychiatric Hospital, South Korea. One of the patients started once the patients started disappearing from the psych hospital, locals grew suspicious about the incidents. There were rumors that the doctors who were going insane kept patients as hostages, rivaling them to madness, and ultimately brutally killing them. It's said that the place was shut down because of sewage problems, but as per local lore, this psych hospital is no less than a haunted graveyard. Lier Sakihus, Norway One of the most haunted spots in the whole of Norway, this place has been abandoned since 1985, but part of it still house psychiatric patients who share their space with ghosts, shadows, and odd noises. The reason why this became a death trap for a lot of humans was because a lot of illegal drug testings that shouldn't be done on humans took place here, resulting in number of deaths. Marintern, Austria. It's hard to pick what's worse. The morbid history that took place in Vienna's Full Tower, Europe's first insane asylum built in 1784, or its current use, the Anatomical Pathological Museum features more than 4,000 graphic, gruesome abnormalities, jars full of deformed fetuses, and sick wax, sickening wax models of untreated STDs. Either way, there are enough elements that exist in this structure that will leave you with the creeps for a long time. Rolling Hills Asylum, New York. This former Genesee County poorhouse Established in 1827 counts over 1,700 documented deaths, including the poor, the widowed, the orphaned, 
the handicapped, the criminal, the alcoholic. Paranormal activities in this spook house include slamming of doors, screaming, and screeching noises. There's always something. There's also something known as the shadow hallway. It's called so because the shadow is being spotted peeking out of doors in the hallway and crawling across the corridor. What is it about peeking hallways with shadows? They have the same thing at Waverly. Transalghani Lunatic Asylum, West Virginia. Built around the Civil War era, the asylum was designed to house around 250 patients, but ended up holding more than 2,400. People were locked in cages, lobotomized with ice picks, chained to things leading to hundreds of deaths, and palpable air of suffering. And since the asylum was briefly a Civil War military base, you would spot uniformed soldier ghosts taking a casual stroll through the corridors. Waverly Hills Sanatorium, Kentucky. This asylum tops the list of America's most haunted spots, with an alleged 63,000 deaths. Now that's a number. Built in 1910, this place was initially built to house cure for tuberculosis patients, but a trail of mistreatments and dubious experiments made many lose their lives, and getting shoved into what is now known as the death tunnel, or the body chute. Spirits include Timmy, a boy who likes to play with a rubber ball, has been caught on tape, the nurse who hung herself in 502, another nurse who fell from the same room's window, and scattered screams and footsteps throughout. Now that's one I've actually visited and done many episodes on. Beechworth Lunatic Asylum, Australia. Before shutting down in 1995, this place saw 128 years of terror and almost 9,000 deaths. It comes as no surprise that a few people loitered after death. Faces floating in windows are a common sight, along with Matron Sharp doing her rounds and children laughing. Tommy Kennedy, who used to transport the dead out of the asylum and died there himself, still hangs around. There's also a woman who was thrown out of the window and died in front of the hospital because she was Jewish, and the only person allowed to move her, a rabbi, couldn't make it to Beechworth sooner. We go over to Scare Street, where they have an article, Top 3 Insane Asylum Stories You Wish Were Not Real, by Chantal Curdy. The walls speak. The hallways echo with the sound of screams and terror. The room looks like they had housed rabid animals and not human beings with severe mental ailments. And through it all, there's a raging thunderstorm outside and bursting lightning that throws shadows across everything. That's usually the picture perceived when anyone speaks of an abandoned asylum. Most of the time, these are just the imaginations of some wonderfully twisted storytellers. But sometimes, these stories echo true. Here are some insane asylum stories that will give us all the chills. The children who had the atrocious misfortune of staying in this place were sexually, physically, and medically abused, extremely neglected, and easily exposed to murder. The universe must have heard these children's agonizing or unearthly screams because journalist Geraldo Rivera exposed the freak show that was the Willowbrook State School to the nation. Rivera's investigation uncovered how Dr. Saul Grugman and Robert McCollum cruelly performed inhumane 
experiments on these children. One of these studies had Krugman force-feeding the hepatitis virus in milkshakes to 60 healthy children. His reasoning was the children were going to suffer from hepatitis either way. The investigation definitely did shed some light on the ongoing atrocity, but that's not all. Apparently, Willowbrook was home to the infamous serial killer, Andre Rand. Finally, seven years later, the Willowbrook hellhole was officially shut down for good, or so we think. The College of Staten Island was constructed on the same grounds, along with some of the cursed Willowbrook's buildings. Students claimed to hear shadowy figures yelling at them. Sometimes these shadowy figures even pushed them. To this day, people still hear creepy stories about Willowbrook, but listening to stories is nothing next to living them. So if you're ever around the area, make sure you live to tell the tale of the haunted Willowbrook. All right. Insane Asylum Stories with an Everlasting Corpse Stain. How horrific is it that the place that promises you safety and care in the same place is the same place that abuses its power against you when you're at your most vulnerable state? The Athens, the Athens Asylum welcomed people with open arms after the Civil War, given the dreadful state that people were in. Anxiety, epilepsy, post-traumatic stress, and high libidos were common but the treatments were inhumane to say the least. This asylum had a garden, farm fields, greenhouses, a carriage shop, a dairy, an orchard. Initially, everything that the asylum owned was meant to benefit the patients, but ironically, the staff thought it'd be a good idea to put their patients on these fields to work. That's not all. The asylum quickly hosted 2,000 patients, which was over three times its capacity. The number of patients surely increased while the number of staff stayed the same, but at least most of the staff were professionally trained to take care of mentally unstable patients, right? Wrong. Most of the staff hadn't had a lick of any sort of training background whatsoever. Add to that bad treatment, misdiagnosed patients, lobotomy, and shock therapy to the mix, and we've got the perfect recipe for a cruel and insane asylum. One can only imagine how things were with so many patients and hardly as many staff members. Patients were neglected, beaten, and were placed in crowded rooms. These rooms were only meant to hold one patient, instead of ten or more. But it gets worse. The things that the staff did in the female ward were beyond insanity. Women, who would naturally exhibit signs of sexual desire, would be later diagnosed with hysteria. These doctors believed that they were sick because of menstrual derangement. These women were going through their menstrual cycle, and for that they were treated with freezing shock therapy, kicking, and sometimes lobotomy, because apparently menstrual pain isn't enough. One of the women, Margaret Schilling, tried to escape and went missing for 42 days. Since the asylum didn't do anything about it, she was accidentally found in an abandoned ward that was used for patients with infectious diseases. To add to the creep factor, her clothes were found neatly folded next to her, while Margaret's dead, decaying body lay on the floor. Apparently, her body had decayed so much that there was still a gooey imprint of her outline on the floor that still exists to this day, despite the staff's hopeless attempts to clean it up.
Finally, the asylum was closed for good in 1993, and the Ohio University was built there instead. Students say that they can hear embodied screams. Some even have seen Margaret trying to escape the room. People always feel unbearable dread when they are around the area, and the stories and rumors only make staying the worse. Sane Asylum Stories That Inspired H.P. Lovecraft If you're familiar with Lovecraft's work, then you can only imagine how bad this asylum was to inspire such a brilliant author to write the twisted, frightening Arkan Sanitarium that still haunts our thoughts to this day. Not only did Danvers State Hospital inspire Lovecraft, but it also inspired Batman's Arkham Asylum. It was built in the 19th century in Massachusetts, and get this, the asylum was built in the same place where the Salem Witch Trials Judge John Hathorne once lived. That's creepy, right? The asylum's gothic design and history might already sound horrifying, but it gets even creepier. The asylum followed in the same footsteps as any classically insane asylum. It was only meant for 600 patients, but ended up hosting around 2,400. And of course, low staff count. Of course, there's the usual insane asylum treatments such as shock therapy and lobotomy. Here's the twist, though. This asylum was the first to operate the transorbital lobotomy where an ice pick is inserted through the eye socket and into the brain. Soon enough, it started to keep patients such as the elderly, who had children that didn't want to take care of them anymore, mentally disabled, alcoholics, drug addicts, and insane criminals. The staff used treatments like shock therapy and lobotomies when they didn't even need to. It was just so they could keep their numerous patients under control. Of course, due to extreme neglect, patients started dying there, and their bodies were found days later. Their cruelty didn't end there. The doctors were using lobotomy to cure anything from natural ailments such as daydreaming and backaches to delusions and depression. Visitors described how dirty the patients were, how they were creepily wandering in the halls, sometimes blankly staring at the walls. Some of these patients weren't even suffering for anything, and the extremity of the treatments are what drove them insane. The asylum was, of course, shut down, and its building demolished. Some patients left the asylum, while others are spending eternity under its grounds. The asylum's buildings don't exist anymore, but its cemetery sure does. So if you ever want to go on a ghost hunt, you know where to go. Truth Behind the Tales No matter what people want to believe, one cannot deny the fact that asylums can be really scary places. Experimental medical strategies, orderlies abusing patients, and the raving of those locked behind closed doors inside padded rooms. It isn't hard to imagine the screams echoing through the centuries, living on forever to haunt the thrill-seeking adventurer who decides to step foot in any of the asylums mentioned above. We go over to the lineup. Five Insane Asylums You Never Want to Find Yourself Locked Up In by Audrey Webster. Favorite location of modern horror movies and television shows, insane asylums have captured our imaginations for ages. They terrify us, but we can't seem to get enough of the mysteries surrounding them. Many of the most famous mental institutions have sordid histories, with famous patients, terrifying ghosts, and scads of abuse. 
Abandoned asylums have become a popular tourist spot, but one thing is certain. You don't want to be caught stuck inside the following asylum's walls when night rolls around. Ranchos Los Amigos, Downey, California. Located just a few miles from downtown LA, Rancho Los Amigos was originally created in 1888 to assist people living in poverty. Here they could work in exchange for care from the local government. Over time, the grounds were extended and space evolved into a hospital. Eventually, it grew into a mental hospital. Though the hospital itself is still in use, it has moved to another location. In the 1950s, it began to shut down its wards, including the mental hospital. Along the way, some gruesome secrets were discovered. In 2006, during a training exercise, Marines uncovered a freezer in the morgue. Inside, they found mummified, amputated limbs and brain tissue samples that were left behind from when the hospital was abandoned. Creedmoor Psychiatric Hospital, Queens, New York. Creedmoor Psychiatric opened in 1912 as the farm colony of Brooklyn State Hospital and is still running in Queens. There are some places that have been abandoned to rot, most notably Building 25, which the building ceased using in 1975. This ward gains its reputation from a series of reports documenting brutal treatment of patients. In the 1970s, rumors began to emerge about an abundance of patient abuse, including rapes, murders, suicides, and beatings. In 1984, a nurse's aide hit a patient in the throat with a blackjack. The man, Robert Venegas, was restrained in a straitjacket at the time and died due to asphyxiation. The aide had crushed his throat. Shortly after, the asylum was closed for good. Intrepid explorers still explore Building 25, which is now covered in pigeon excrement and filled with detritus from its former days, maybe even a few ghosts. Athens Lunatic Asylum. Again, we hear about Mar Margaret Schilling, like they told us previously, but I will read the parts that weren't mentioned. Built in 1874, the original and originally intended to tend to tuberculosis patients, Athens Lunatic Asylum housed patients far over its capacity for most of its functioning years. This overcrowding caused the care of each patient to decrease until the hospital began abusing its patients. Athens, also called the Ridges, is notable because its famed Dr. Walter Jackson Dr. Jackson was a big fan of the transorbital lobotomy, calling it the cure-all for every mental illness. And in that time, he performed over 200 lobotomies during his time there. Fairfield Hills State Hospital, Newton, Connecticut. Opened to ease the overpopulation of the other two mental hospitals in Newton, Fairfield Hills, quickly became overcrowded itself and resorted to unconventional methods of treating its patients. Aside from the then-normal lobotomies and Thorazine prescriptions, this hospital became known for its use of hydrotherapy. You're thinking that's not so bad, right? Not exactly. Used as a calming method, this treatment involved patients being submerged in ice water, sometimes for more than a full day. They were not permitted out, even to relieve themselves. Many locals believe that the remnants of the Fairfield State Hospital to be haunted, especially the tunnels used to shuttle patients dead and alive through the sprawling campus. 
Fairfield Hills shut down in 1995. Again, all of these asylums seem to be shut down in our lifetime. Like, like we were alive during this time when they were finally shut down. So, I mean, this is not ancient past history. This is fairly recent. I have a feeling this one's going to be mentioned several times tonight, but the Trans-Algheny Lunatic Asylum, Weston, Westford, right? The Trans-Algheny Hospital opened its doors in 1964, just in time to begin admitting soldiers from the Civil War. At the time, there was no understanding of shell shock or post-traumatic stress. The doctors treated them understandably traumatized patients by doling out lobotomies and other brutal tactics. During the century it was running, thousands of patients died there. Most were buried in mass graves on the grounds. Its most famous patient, Charles Manson, lived there in the latter years of the hospital's functioning. After decades of mistreatment and abuse, the Trans-Algheny closed its doors in 1994. You can now visit the Trans-Algheny with one of their ghost tours, but maybe don't stay overnight. Let's take a little break and get right back into the stories from Insane Asylums. All right, let's jump into another article. This one comes from Exemplor. It's called America's Most Notorious Insane Asylum Hauntings. It was written by Elizabeth. All right, haunted insane asylums. Death, illness, and tragedy have long permeated the history of American insane asylums. Beginning in the late 18th century, buildings that housed the criminally and mentally insane swept the country like a plague. Now, all but lost to history is the brutality of these institutions. Torture and abuse all but flowed freely, and time has yet to erase the multitude of horror that was brought down upon each surviving soul. Take a journey into the world of asylums. See why they are some of the scariest places on earth. And join me for a road trip into the supernatural. The Ridges, Athens, Ohio. Facts. The Ridges, also known as Athens Mental Health Center, is located in Athens, Ohio. Originally monikered the Athens Asylum for the Criminally Insane, this massive institution first opened its doors January 9, 1874, 135 years ago. The state and federal governments had purchased over 1,000 acres of land from the Coates, a family whose farm had previously occupied the land. The main building, enormous in structure, was designed around the idea that it was therapeutic for patients to be housed in a facility that resembled a home. Asylums at this time were more often than not a facade of mental abuse and torture. The Ridges was the first of its kind, an asylum where bleeding, freezing, and kicks to the head were not thought of as ways to shock the illness out of the brain. The less disturbed patients were housed closer to the center, where the administrative offices and employee housing were. The violent patients were housed at the far end of the wings, away from employee housing and convenient exit and entries. The building housed over 200 patients until overcrowding ensued in the early 1900s. The patient count then rose to nearly 2,000 patients in a building with only 544 rooms. The increase in popularity led to the decline in patient treatment. Once unique in its mental practices, the ridges fell prone to old-time customs. 
Eventually, the ridges reverted to hostile patient care, including physical abuse, water treatment, shock therapy, and lobotomies. By 1993, the Athens Asylum for the Criminally Insane busts its last patients out and closes doors for good. All patients except for one, that is. On December 1st, 1978, a female patient named Margaret Schilling disappeared from one of the active wards. On, 19, on January 12th, 1979, 42 days later, they found her lifeless body on the abandoned top floor of Ward N20. The ward at the time, abandoned and closed down for years, was used for sick, infectious patients. A search was done when the woman went missing, but apparently the only floor not checked was N20. When a maintenance man found her body lifeless, cold, and unclothed, she had been dead for several weeks. The official cause of death was heart failure, but why still remains a mystery. A stain in the shape of a human figure can still be seen on the floor where she died. It is said that her spirit can be seen peering from the window of the room in which she spent her final moments. People have also said they've heard disembodied female voices, lights, shadow people, and the sound of squeaking gurneys. Again, this one is about one we've already covered, so I, I apologize in advance if anything is repeated. This one is Danvers State Lunatic Asylum, Danvers, Massachusetts. Danvers State Lunatic Asylum is probably one of the most notorious, haunted, and intriguing places on Earth. High atop Hawthorne Hill, Overlooking the scenic countryside sits an incomprehensibly massive structure. Don the Witch's Castle on the Hill, Danvers State Lunatic Asylum was constructed in 1878, costing a mere $1.5 million, and was considered to be architectural masterpiece. The asylum resides in the town of Danvers, Massachusetts, which many people are unaware was formerly known as Salem Village. Salem Village was the first actual location of the, or the 1692 Salem Witch Trials. Unbeknownst to some, the Witch Trials did not begin in Salem, but in Salem Village, or present-day Danvers, at a church on Center Street. The trials were later moved to a larger building, building in Salem, when a hysteria ran rampant and onlooking spectators swarmed the church. More significantly, the most fantastical judge of the witch trials, Jonathan Hawthorne, lived in the house built by his father in 1646 at the top of that hill, in the exact location on which the asylum stands today, hence the name Witch's Castle. It has also been speculated that John Proctor and four other accused witches were hung on Gallows Hill in 1692, the property on which Danvers was built. Danvers was the epitome of ever-changing healthcare at the turn of the century, and its humane treatments of patients earned its brilliant reputation. But like so many others at its time, it fell victim to rising costs, lack of government funding, understaffing, and overpopulation. Its deteriorated physical state was a hellhole likened to that of a German death camp. A humane facility had turned dark by the mid-half of the century. Danvers, between 1940 and 1950, housed over 2,600 mentally ill patients in a structure only designed to house 600. Due to overcrowding, it relied on medical interventions customary to infamous asylums at the time. Of course, shock therapy, hydrotherapy, insulin shock therapy, psychosurgery, and lobotomies. The frontal lobotomy was said to be perfected here. 
To keep its burgeoning census under control, patients had became haggard and ghostly, often spending a majority of their time alone and in solitary confinement, in a space no longer than a small bathroom, no larger than a small bathroom. Poorly clothed and sometimes naked, these legions of lost souls were shown pacing aimlessly on the wards, lying on the filthy cement floors, or sitting head in hand against the pockmarked walls. It was so bad that a lifeless patient would go unnoticed for days. Finally, in 1992, Danvers State Lunatic Asylum shut its doors for good. The remaining patients were placed accordingly in other facilities, and the castle was locked down. Fourteen years passed as the building sat abandoned. Then in 2005, the property was bought, and parts of the once grander hospital were demolished. Although still recognizable, Danvers State is now apartments, and although part of the original structure was kept, the foreboding that once emanated from this great palace is gone. So their hauntings. With such a trivial history, it's no wonder why Danvers was dubbed one of the scariest places on earth. Although converted to apartments, the lore and legends of Danvers remains. People have reported flickering lights, full body apparitions, and hearing invisible footsteps and doors that open and close on their own. Whether the hauntings are residual energy burned into the atmosphere of the eerie place, or whether they are intelligent, it's up to you to decide. Byberry Mental Hospital, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Byberry Mental Hospital is located on the outskirts of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Byberry was first constructed in 1906 and opened its doors to its first patient in 1907. It began its humble beginnings as a working farm for the mentally ill, but between 1910 and 1920, construction of a large asylum was begun and completed. As asylum popularity grew throughout the country, by the mid-1930s, Byberry's population quickly expanded, and with it came tales of patient abuse and neglect. Insufficient funds left the asylum in disrepair, and patients wound up unclothed, starved, and sleeping in raw sewage-filled hallways. Many patients were forced to live in huddled, in live huddled in decrepit, dingy rooms with no socialization or supervision. Every menstrual institution nightmare you can imagine came true in this place. Padded cells, restraining devices, solitary confinement, beatings by brutal wardens, and violent inmates lobotomies, and electric shock were just some of the horrid treatments used. Byberry became known as the real-life house of horrors, as murder, suicide, and brutality reigned. Finally, in 1990, state authorities were forced to close the doors of Byberry after a thorough investigation advertised the despicable living conditions within Byberry's walls. Yet its dark history continued on and remains to this very day. The crumbling building that once housed hundreds of mentally insane patients and subterranean and the subterranean tunnels that connected them were left vacant and forgotten. Until now. There is a multiple of horror stories surrounding Byberry. As it closed, it became a magnet for all sorts of unwelcome visitors. Thieves, vagrants, gangs, supposedly satanic cults, and possibly former inmates in search of shelter. Less mentally ill patients were tossed to the street after Byberry closed. The miles of catacombs beneath the abandoned asylums have often given rise to some very creepy stories. One freakishly scary urban legend comes from a former patient who reportedly still lurks in the tunnels below, hiding in wait 
wielding a large knife to slice the throats of any unexpected explorer that should cross his path. It is also said that a gang of satanic occultists have taken refuge in the dilapidated building. The satanic rituals that are said to take place here have possibly opened a door to hell within these walls, as growling sounds, the bodily welts and scratches have been reported. So take caution should you adventure at night. Ghosts are not the only thing lying in wait. I'll add that to my list of places never to go to. <laughs> Alright, this one we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Not yet in this episode, but a lot in this podcast, which is Waverly Hills Sanatorium in my hometown, or near my hometown, of Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, I've decided to save the best for last. Welcome to Waverly Hills. Facts. In Louisville, Kentucky, perched high upon massive hills, sit Waverly Hills Sanatorium. This reigning fortress of doom, its decaying state, casts an eerie feeling on the city below. The atmosphere surrounding Waverly creates a sense of foreboding and is further darkened by a chilling history. Waverly Hills Sanatorium was built in 1924 to replace an existing hospital, built in 1910, that became overpopulated due to the rapid spread of plague-like disease tuberculosis. Although Waverly Hills was considered the most advanced tuberculosis sanatorium in the country, Hundreds of adults and children still perished at the peak of the epidemic. Ultimately, the deaths occurred because of lack of medicines. A cure for tuberculosis wouldn't come until 1940, and although treatments were performed to help alleviate the condition of the patients, most times they were just as horrific as the disease itself, and most patients did not survive. By the late 1930s, a decline in tuberculosis occurred. Then in 1943, a cure for the disease was made available worldwide. Patients were treated accordingly, and when healthy, were released. Then in 1946, after tuberculosis was under control, Waverly Hills shut down. Yet that was not the end of the story. It was later reopened as Woodhaven Geriatric Sanatorium in 1961. During this time, there were many stories of patient mistreatment and unusual experiments. By 1982, Waverly was shut down indefinitely. Today, it sits abandoned. With 64,000 deaths under its belt, it's no wonder why Waverly Hills is considered to be one of the most haunted asylums in the country. As if death wasn't enough to cause a haunting, it has also been speculated that satanic rituals have taken place within its walls. Shadow people lurk within its corridors, accompanied by disembodied voices and slamming doors. Here are a few well-known occurrences at Waverly. An elderly woman is often seen in spectral form, crying for help, bleeding with her wrists and ankles chained. The third floor. It is said, depending on who is speaking, that either a ghostly little boy, Robert, or girl, Mary, haunts the third floor. Oftentimes, people report seeing this ghostly apparition playing with a ball. Others have heard the ball bouncing on the floor or down the stairs. The faint voices of children are often heard singing round and round the rosy on the roof. The fifth floor and room 502. Stories say that in 1928, the head nurse in room 502 was found dead in her room. She had committed suicide by hanging herself from a light fixture. She was 29 years old at the time of her death and allegedly unmarried and pregnant. Her depression over the situation led her to take her own life. It is unknown how long she may have been hanging in the room before her body was discovered. 
Then in 1932, another nurse who worked in 502 was said to jump from the roof patio and plunge several stories to her death. No one seems to know why she would have done this, but many have speculated that she may have actually been pushed over the edge. There are no records that indicate this, but rumors continue to persist. It's reported that people have seen her full-body apparition on this floor. Feelings of despair are oftentimes felt in this area, as well as a voice growling, Get out. The fourth floor. The fourth floor is regarded as one of the most creepy, scary, and active areas in the hospital. Doors are reported to slam for no apparent reason in an area of the fourth floor that is off-limits to human occupants due to the unsafe nature of the area. Ghostly, shadow-like silhouettes are also said to be lurking in the halls as well. This comes from Nurse Labs. It's 13 of the most haunted hospitals and asylums in the world. All right, for sake of brevity, um, if I come across another Margaret Schilling or Waverly, I might just skip over it. Um, so we can get as much asylums in this episode as possible. Some ghost stories are creepier than others, but there is nothing as terrifying as seeing the real venue where those eerie stories and anecdotes took place. These hospitals have relinquished their original state and are now left in waning ruins for decades, despite being clean and sterile in times past. They are once great and famous for their unwavering service to the place to the place but has turned into something horrible dried up just part of the past leaving spooky glimpses into where our fellow nurses spent their lives long ago it doesn't matter if you believe in ghosts or not but there is certain places where we nurses are connected and remain to be a part of the hospitals whether we like it or not the hospitals that are mentioned in asylums you're about to see are quite disturbing they're creepy for reasons beyond just looking at the part that they should probably not be viewed alone so start grabbing fellow nurses and enjoy the spooky ride. Number 13, Royal Hope Hospital, Florida, USA. First on the list is a hospital located in Florida, USA, known by many of its gruesome history. Royal Hope Hospital was a Spanish military hospital from 1784 to 1821 and was eventually demolished through time. Finally, a replica of their original hospital was built to house the victims during the Seminole War. However, when the city workers were about to repair the water lines and penetrated the area of the old building, they found out that the building was originally built on what appeared to be an ancient Native American burial ground. Visitors of the Spanish Military Hospital Museum would often mention qualities of groans and shouts coming from unoccupied rooms, adding up to the chill Real ill beds moving over the place. Beverage jars sliding across, sliding across over outside seats and frequently sound of marching feet in an unfilled stairwell. Frequently, encounters of strange events and apparition sightings were told and are still being experienced by guests. Paranormal experts once claimed that the place is a real breeding ground of haunted Florida soul and paranormal movement. And according to them, these sorts of hauntings inclined to be present in zones where human feeling and emotion is or was focused all the time. Number 12. Tranquil Sanatorium, Canada. Tranquil Sanatorium was built in 1907 and was a ranch before its owners became, began caring for tuberculosis patients. A small community known as Tranquil was built around it. 
The community has its beautiful gardens, houses, a farm, a fire department, more facilities. In 1958, the hospital closed and was reopened in 1959 to treat the mentally ill. It closed permanently in 1983. However, not everything is tranquil at the sanatorium. Spirits persist in knocking around the place. The years of isolation and sadness seem to have been absorbed into the surroundings, and on occasion, those emotions can be felt by the living. The haunted encounters can occur. It would seem Tranquil's sanatorium just might be haunted. Today, strange floating orbs throughout the facility, inexplicable feelings of sadness, unease, and dramatic temperature changes still invade the place. There have been stories about mysterious voices and ghostly figures, one of which is that of a nurse who was brutally murdered by a patient. Number 11. Severals Hospital, England. Severals Hospital in Colchester, Essex, United Kingdom, was a psychiatric hospital built in 1910 to the design of architect Frank Whitmore. It opened in May 1913 and housed some 2,000 patients. Most of the buildings are in the Queen Anne style, with few architectural embellishments typical of the Edwardian period. The most ornate buildings of the administration building, Lark House and Severals House, formerly the medical superintendent's residence. The reputation for being extremely haunted in this context shouldn't come as a surprise. The hospital closed as a psychiatric hospital in the early 1990s, following the closure of other mental institutions. However, a small section remained open until March 20, 1997 for the treatment of elderly patients suffering from the effects of severe stroke. However, ghost hunters, ghost hunters are still very interested in the place in search of encounters of the critical kind. Number 10, Whittingham Hospital, England. Whittingham Hospital was a psychiatric hospital with the parish of Whittingham near Preston, Lancashire, England. It opened in 1873 as the fourth Lancashire County Asylum and grew to be the largest mental hospital in Britain. However, in 1967, the hospital faced a controversy involving complaints of mistreatment in two male and two female wards in the St. Luke's Division, with the worst being Ward 16 for women. Complaints were reported such as the patients being locked in small rooms under staircases, in washrooms, and outside in the airing courts, regardless of the weather. Others include patients being dragged by the hair, a, a wet towel treatment where a damp towel would be wrapped around the patient's neck to induce unconsciousness, nurses setting fire to a patient's clothing while being worn, beatings, and vermin infestations. An investigation took place, and as a result, both the head male nurse and matron took early retirement. Two male nurses were convinced of theft, or convicted of theft, and in a separate incident, another nurse was jailed for manslaughter of an elderly patient he had assaulted. The negative imagery of this hospital exists for a reason. It offers the kind of hauntings you most likely would never want to encounter. Old Shangi Hospital, Singapore. Located in Shangi, Singapore, Shanghai Hospital was previously known as Royal Air Force Hospital and was merged with the Tao Paio Hospital and renamed Shanghai General Hospital. After it was closed in 1997, it sat abandoned for over a decade. 
Regarded as one of the most haunted places in Singapore, Old Shanghai Hospital was captured by the Japanese forces during World War II and was used as a healthcare facility for prisoners of war detained in the Shanghai military base nearby. The uneasy feeling of the visitors was probably brought by people who lost their lives in the hands of the Japanese and are still seeking refuge up to this time. According to some of the terrifying moments, excitement, and adventures were not worth an exchange for what followed them home. Number 8. Sang Yen Pun Psychiatry Hospital, Hong Kong Built in 1892, Si Ying Pun was a Japanese World War II structure. The Victorian complex is rumored to have served as an execution hall by the Japanese troops. It was later transformed into a psychiatric institution following the war, then fell into disrepair and was severely ruined by two fires, which were believed to be inadvertently started by trespassers. Tales of ghostly sightings were spread since it was abandoned in the 1970s. It has come to be known as High Street Ghost House due to many tales of the supernatural that have emerged. Visitors have confessed the sounds of a woman crying or loud booming sound emanating from the building, mysterious footsteps to recurring sightings of a devilish figure in traditional Chinese costume bursting into flames, specifically on the building's second floor. Number 7. Clark Air Base Hospital, Philippines Clark Air Base Hospital, which serves as the air base from the early 1900s until 1991, is now abandoned and was cited by Ghost Hunters International as one of the most haunted places in the world. Clark Air Base has a long, violent, and often bloody history in the Philippines and is considered one of the most haunted places in the archipelago. The base also was the dwelling place to which many wounded American soldiers evacuated during the Vietnam War and the traumas and deaths from the conflict also left their mark on the spirit presence in the hospital. Paranormal activities are reported in the abandoned Clark Air Base Hospital, where headless apparitions and mysterious voices are simply common occurrences for the Filipinos nearby. Violent spirits observed and attested by the residents have rendered the area off-limits to everyone, and in the Clark Museum nearby, the ghost of a serviceman who committed suicide still haunts the place where he hanged himself. It is remarkable that the hospital is one of the few areas that ghost hunters have examined that was deemed disturbed. Number 6. Nocturne Hall Hospital, England Built in 1530, Nocturne Hall background has much to tell if history is the target. It is a grade 2 listed building in the village of Nocton in Lincolnshire, England. From a manor house, the building was later used as a convalescence home for wounded American officers during the First World War. It was used again in the Second World War as a military hospital and has been used similarly ever since. It reverted to private use in the 1980s until a major fire struck the building and left it in a derelict state. In another tale, it is said that a young woman was raped and murdered by the son of the owner of the place back when it was a manor house. Today, her presence has been reported by various people who have stayed at the building, haunting one particular room, with many a person claiming to have seen the ghostly image appear in the room, precisely at 4.30 a.m. Alright, let's take a little break, and get right back into the article after this. Alright, welcome back. 
We're going to pick up in that same article from Nurse Labs. So here we go. We're on number five, which is Ararat Lunatic Asylum, Australia. The ever-famous Ararat Lunatic Asylum in Australia is now called Aradale. It was the largest in all of Australia when it opened in 1867. Throughout its functional existence, the healthcare facility held tens of thousands of patients, including the most dangerous, hysterical, and violent psychotics in the world. To feel the chills about this place, an astonishing 13,000 patients died in the facility within its 130 years of service. This is enough reason for it to be named as one of the most haunted places in the country. Moreover, the facility reopened in 2001 as a campus after concluding its healthcare services in 1998. Would you mind taking higher education in this institute? I bet it would be fun. All right, number four is Athens Mental Hospital that we've already covered. Number three, Beechworth Lunatic Asylum, Australia. Beechworth Lunatic Asylum, formerly known as Mayday Hills Lunatic Asylum, is a decommissioned hospital in Victoria, Australia. Both Beechworth and Ararat were opened in the same year after Victoria's lone mental institution suffered, became overcrowded. The facility lasted for 128 years and closed its doors in 1995. Ghost tours now run in the building as visitors are regaled with terrifying tales, including the story of James Kelly, uncle of the notorious bush ranger Ned Kelly. Charged with attempted murder, he was initially sentenced to death in June 1868, but was downgraded to 10 years of hard labor. He was released from jail and sent to Ararat Lunatic Asylum, and later transferred to the Beechworth Lunatic Asylum, where he died in 1903. More than 9,000 inmates lost their lives within the walls of the asylum, including a young girl who was mysteriously thrown from a high window, with the reason never being explained. No worries. She is either friendly or oblivious towards the living. Number 2. Taunton State Hospital, Massachusetts, USA Built in 1854, Taunton State Hospital was a psychiatric hospital located in Taunton, Massachusetts, and it brags a horrible yet alarming history. You would understand the entire story if you were aware of the hospital's most famous patient, Jane Toppin, a serial killer who confessed to having murdered at least 31 people while working as a nurse. However, the story involving the people who ran the hospital is even more terrifying than many of the criminally insane patients it housed. Tales that are beyond our imagination has often been the subject of talk, including satanic rituals that have been carried out in the basement by the doctors and nurses using the unwilling patients for the proceedings. Since then, it is believed that the basement area has long been customed, consumed by the shadow figure, who would come out and crawl onto the walls and watch patients in the hospital. Alright... And I think we are at number one. Again, number one, they have set aside for Waverly Hills. Um, and they talk about a lot of the same things uh, that we have already mentioned, such as Timmy or Mary with the ball, uh, the hearse that appeared in the back of the building to drop off coffins, the woman with the bleeding wrists, man in a white coat who's been walking around, the kitchen and the smell of food being cooking, 
uh, wafting through the rooms. Visitors told of banging doors, lights in the windows, um, and eerie footsteps in the hallways and empty rooms. Now that plans have been developed to convert the paranormal hotspot into a four-star hotel, you should be making hotel reservations as early as now. I would suggest a simple yet recognizable room on the fifth floor, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know if they're actually going to turn that into a hotel, but the tour that I took of there, because it's located close to where I live, um, it was definitely worth it. It was only a two-hour tour um, around midnight. So it definitely was worth it because they do tell you a lot about the history and the scary stories that they've been told about and that they've passed on throughout the ages from the place. But uh, yeah, definitely worth going. It's uh, it's an experience for sure. Um, I would definitely go back in a heartbeat. But yeah, it's definitely cool. Um, some honorary mentions are Ibaraki Higashi Hospital in Japan. Uh, it's one of um, is one of the rare modern but wooden hospitals that aren't demolished yet. Located in the middle of a large urban area, the entrance to the hospital is guarded by a beautiful Japanese lady in blue and green. The hospital equipment, machines, beds, wheelchairs are still recognizable but scattered everywhere. The operating room, I guess, is still very active because the reports of it setting being rearranged from time to time. Shadows and full apparitions are often seen along the corridors, including the sound of a little boy sobbing in a particular area that is heard very well. The Nichitsu Town Clinic in Japan. What's creepier than a small hospital situated inside an abandoned town? Located in Saitama Prefecture, Nichitsu is a former mining village lost among the mountains. The mine was abandoned some 30 years ago, same as the village. The tiny infirmary is at the corner of Nichitsu village, hidden between, behind the trees, completely deserted, tucked away in the valley that is often shrouded in fog, making its yawning, deteriorating architecture even creepier. Although the unified town is worth a look, it's within the wooden walls of somewhat unassuming looking clinic that real horrors can be found. Inside it lies strewn interior covered with dust, debris all over the place, including a collection of medical portions and human organs, which are more or less recognizable in jars. There's even a human brain. Right, and then that person, they hear laughing and crying in that place as well. All right. We are at lithub.com, and this is the reporter who went undercover at an asylum. Nellie Bly committed herself to the infamous Blackwell Island Asylum just to get a story by Susanna Callahan. When the U.S. government started tracking the incidents of mental illness, it broke it down in two broad categories of idiocy and insanity. By 1880, the census had expanded to include seven categories of mental disease. Mania, melancholia, monomania, paresis, dementia, epilepsy, dipsomania. But in the first half of the 19th century, most doctors believed that craziness was a one-size-fits-all, something like unitary psychosis. If you acted crazy, you were crazy. Almost anything could make you a ward of the state, 
Compulsive epilepsy, metabolic disorders, syphilis, personality due to epidemic encephalitis, moral adverse conditions such as loss of a friend, business troubles, mental strain, religious excitement, sunstroke, or overheat. Read one intake log from California's Patton State Hospital archive. One reason for commitment at Patton State in the 19th century was excessive masturbation. Another was being kicked in the head by a mule. Other hospital records show that some poor souls were committed for habitual consumption of peppermint candy or excessive use of tobacco. Unmoored after a child died, you could be institutionalized. Use a foul word or two, in a cell you go. Miss a menstrual cycle and you could be committed. These kinds of convenient diagnoses, the sort of given to citizens who don't conform, have littered the annals of psychiatry. Psychiatry. Hysteria was lobbed at women who dared to defy social mores. In England, militant suffragettes in particular were diagnosed with insurgent hysteria. A 19th century Louisiana physician outlined two conditions unique to the slaves he studied. Dysathia... Ethiopia, or pathological laziness, and drapetomania, the evidently inexplicable desire to escape bondage. Treatments for both included whippings. Wow. These were not in any medical or scientific sense real illnesses or disorders. They were pseudoscience, purely societal strictures posing as medicine. Throw a rock into a crowd in the late 1800s, and there's a good chance you'd hit somebody who had spent some time in an asylum. And for those who did end up committed, odds were were not great that they would make it out intact. Once declared insane, you could permanently lose custody of your children, property, and rights to inheritance. Many would remain locked away for a long time, if not the rest of their lives. Those who pushed back were often beaten or treated with bleeding, leechings, enemas, induced bouts of intense vomiting, which were key parts of the general medicine's arsenal of care at the time. A substantial portion of people were admitted to psychiatric hospitals in periods died within months, even weeks of being admitted. Though there was no definitive proof whether this was because they really suffered from misdiagnosis life-threatening medical conditions, or the hospital's conditions themselves led to an early end, or if it was a combination of the two. The malleability of the era's definitions of insanity meant that any man of certain means and pedigree could just pay off a doctor or two and dispatch whomever he wanted gone, a disobedient wife, for example, or an inconvenient relative. This understandably bred a widespread anxiety over false diagnosis. Newspapers stoked this fear by publishing a litany of articles about people sidelined into mental hospitals who weren't truly sick. All right, there was Lady Rosina, an outspoken British writer whose feminist views estranged her from her famous husband, writer Sir Edward Bueller Lytton, creator of the most cliched opening line of all time. It was a dark and stormy night. Sir Butler Lytton didn't have time for such a mouthy wife, especially with his seat in Parliament in jeopardy. 
so we tried to lock her up to shut her up. Thanks to her own celebrity and the pressure of the press put on her husband, she emerged three weeks later and wrote about her experience in 1880s A Blighted Life. Never was more criminal or despotic law passed that which now enables a husband to lock up his wife in a madhouse on the certificate of two medical men who often in haste frequently for a bribe certify to madness where none exists is a quote from that. Elizabeth Packard continued Lady Rosina's fight in America. Packard butted heads with her Presbyterian minister husband, Theophilus. What? His name was Theophilus? About her interest in spiritualism. Her religious interest made Packard a direct threat to her husband's stature in the community. So to save his own reputation, he recruited a doctor to denounce her as slightly insane and commit her to Jacksonville Insane Asylum where she lived for three years. When Packard was released in her husband's care, she managed to escape the room he had locked her in by dropping a note out the window. The note reached her friend who arranged a group of men to request a wit of habeas corpus on her behalf, giving Packard the opportunity to defend her sanity in court. A jury deliberated for only seven minutes before concluding that despite what her husband and doctor said, Packard would Packard was sane. She published the book The Prisoner's Hidden Life, which also featured the experiences of other women unloaded into hospitals by their loved ones. Thanks to her work, the state of Illinois passed a bill for the protection of personal liberty, which guaranteed that all who were accused of insanity would be able to defend themselves in front of a jury, since doctors, it was recognized, could be bought and sold. There were negatives to Packard's reforms as jurors would be grossly ignorant about the matters related to mental illness. After Bly successfully made enough of a scene at the boarding house for the police to be summoned, she was escorted to Manhattan's Essex Market Police Court, where she faced the judge who would decide whether or not she would be locked up. Luckily for her, or rather for the New York world, the judge accepted the events of the morning at face value. Poor child, mused Judge Duffy. She is well-dressed and a lady. I would stake everything on her being a good girl. Though she'd worn her most ragged clothes and acted insane as she could, her gentle looks and manners made it hard for him to take the next step. The judge understood that Blackwell Island was far from a place of refuge, and he hesitated to send someone he felt was too well-bred to suffer indignities there. I don't know what to do with this poor child. She must be taken care of. Send her to the island, suggested one of the officers. The judge called in an insanity expert, a colloquial term from the era, to describe the doctors who work with the insane. These specialists, also called alienists and medical psychologists, or mocked as bughouse doctors, quacks, or mad doctors, mainly spent their careers confined like the charges to the asylums. All right, psychiatrist would become the preferred term in the early 20th century. The insanity expert asked Bly to say ah, so he could see her tongue. He shined a light into her eyes, felt her pulse, and listened to the beating of her heart. Bly held her breath. I had not the least idea of how the heart of an insane person beat, she later wrote. Apparently, her vital signs spoke of, 
for her. On whatever quantitative grounds he found to set her apart from the sane, the expert took her to the insane ward at Bellevue. There, she was examined by a second doctor who deemed her positively demented and shipped her off to Blackwell Island. When Bly stepped off the boat and onto the shore, the whiskey-soaked attendant welcomed her to the women's asylum, an insane place where you'll never get out of. The word asylum comes from the Greek, ancient Greek word meaning safe from being seized. Among the Romans, the word evolved in its current meaning, a place of refuge or a place safe from violence. The first asylums built specifically to house the mentally ill emerged by the Byzantine Empire around AD 500, and by the turn of the new millennium, many towns in Europe, the Middle East, and the Mediterranean had one. As forward-thinking as this seems, hospitals as we know them today are a modern concept. In the early days, there weren't many differences among jails, poorhouses, and hospitals, and these asylums were known for their brutal treatment of their charges. The, mass, the vast majority of mentally ill lived with their families, but this too sounds more idyllic than the reality. In 18th century Ireland, mentally ill family members were held in holes five feet beneath their cottage floors, a space not big enough for most to stand up, with a barrier over the hole to deter escape. There he generally dies. The rest of the Europe around that time was no more progressive. In Germany, a teenager suffering from some unnamed psychological affliction was chained up to in a pig pen for so long he lost the use of his legs. In England, the mentally ill were staked to the ground in workhouses. In one Swiss city, a fifth of the mentally ill were under constant restraint at home. Europe's oldest psychiatric hospital, Bethlehem Royal Hospital, nicknamed Bedlam, started as a priory in London in 1247 and was a hospital in the medieval sense, a charitable institution for the needy. Bedlam or Bethlehem began catering exclusively to the insane about a century later. Their idea of a cure was to chain people in place and whip and starve them to punish the disease out of their system. One person confined to Bethlehem for 14 years was held by a stout iron ring around his neck with a heavy chain that was attached to the wall, allowing him to move only a foot. The belief was that the insane were no better than animals and should be treated even worse because unlike livestock, they were useless. All right. In the mid-1800s, American activist Dorothea Dix deployed her sizable inheritance to devote herself to the issues of the fierceness with a fierceness of purpose that hadn't been matched since. She traveled more than 30,000 miles across America in three years to reveal the brutalities wrought upon the mentally ill, describing the saddest picture of human suffering and degradation. A woman tearing off her own skin. A man forced to live in an animal stall. A woman confined to below, or to below ground cage with no access to light. People chained in place for years. Clearly, the American system hadn't improved much on Europeans' old familial treatments. Dix, a tireless advocate, called upon the Massachusetts legislature to take on the sacred cause of caring for the mentally unwell during a time when women were unwelcome in politics. 
Her efforts helped found 32 new therapeutic asylums on the philosophy of moral treatment. Dorothea Dix died in 1887, the same year that our brave Nellie Bly went undercover on Blackwell Island, in essence continuing Dick's legacy by exposing how little had truly changed. Blackwell Island was supposed to have been different, built as a beacon for all the world. It was located on 147 acres in the middle of the East River and was meant to embody the theory of moral treatment that Dix had championed. Its central tenets came from French physician Philippe Pinel, who was credited with the breaking his charges free of their chains, literally, and instating a more humanistic approach to treating madness. Though his legacy, historians suggest some of some come from more myth than reality. The mentally sick, far from being guilty people deserving of punishment, are sick people whose miserable state deserves a consideration that is due to suffering humanity, Pinell said. Connecticut physician Eli Todd introduced moral treatment stateside and outlined the new necessities, peace and quiet, healthy diet, and daily routines. These new retreats replaced the old madhouses or lunatic houses and moved the soothing surroundings away from the stresses of the city. In some cases, asylums expanded into many cities where hospital superintendents, doctors, and nurses lived alongside the patients. They tended farms together, cooked in the kitchen together, even made their own furniture and ran their own railroads. The idea was that orderly routines and daily toil created purpose, and purpose created meaning, which led to recovery. The doctor-patient relationship was key. People were treated as people, and the sick could be cured. It was the intention anyway. Blackwell Island may have been founded on these ideals, but in 1839... But by Nellie's era, it had thoroughly earned its notoriety as one of the deadliest asylums in the country. After Charles Dickens visited in 1842, he immediately wanted off the island and its lounging, listless madhouse air. Dickens later tried to commit his wife, Catherine, to an asylum so that he could pursue an affair with a younger actress, a downright monstrous act considering he knew what he knew about the places. Blackwell's asylum housed numbers that far exceeded its capacity. In one instance, six women were confined to a room meant for one. Reports detailed the onward flow of misery, including a woman made to give birth in a solitary cell alone in a straitjacket, and another woman who died after making, mistaking rat poison for pudding. The inhabitants Bly encountered on Blackwell Island looked lost and hopeless. Some walked in circles, talking to themselves. Others repeatedly insisted that they were sane, but no one listened. Bly, meanwhile, dropped all pretense of insanity once she made it inside the hospital. I talked and acted just like I do in ordinary life. Yet strange to say, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be, she wrote. Any worry, which would soon turn to hope, that she might be exposed as a fake evaporated the minute the nurses plunged her into an ice bath and scrubbed her until the goose flesh skin turned blue, pouring three buckets of water over her in succession. She was so caught by surprise that she felt like she was drowning. 
a similar sensation I imagined to waterboarding. For once, I did look insane. Unable to control myself at the absurd picture I presented, I burst into roars of laughter. The first day, she quickly learned what it was like to be discarded by humanity. Whatever ladylike manner had caught the judge's eye was meaningless here, where she was just another in a series of worthless paupers. Patients, even those in open syphilitic sores, were made to wash in the same filthy bathtub until it became thick and dirty enough with human waste and dead vermin that the nurses finally changed it. The food was so rotten that even butter turned rancid. The meat, when offered, was so tough the women chomped down on one end and pulled at the other with both hands to rip it into digestible pieces. Bly had too much decorum to discuss this in her article, but even using the toilets was a traumatic experience. There were long troughs, troughs filled with water that were supposed to be drained at regular intervals, but like everything else in this godforsaken place, what was supposed to happen rarely ever did. Bly listened to the stories from her sisters on Hall 6. Louise Schantz, a German immigrant who had landed in this hell simply because she didn't speak English. Compare this with a criminal who was given every chance to prove his innocence, who would not rather be a murderer and take the chance for life than be declared insane without hope of escape, Bly wrote. Another patient told Bly about a young girl who had been beaten so badly by the nurses for refusing a bath that she died the next morning. One of the treatments used on the island was the crib, a terrifying contraption in which a woman was forced to lie down in a cage, so confining it prevented any movement, like a tomb. Within a few days, Bly had gathered more than enough evidence for her expose, but now she began to worry that she would never be free. A human rat trap, she called it. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. This was not much of an exaggeration. According to 1874 report, people spent on average 10 to 30 years on Blackwell Island. By this point, Bly was proclaiming her sanity to anyone that would listen, and the more I endeavored to assure them of my sanity, the more they doubted it. What are you doctors here for? She asked one. To take care of the patients and test their sanity? The doctor replied, Try every test on me, she said. Tell me I am sane or insane. But no matter how much she begged for a reevaluation, the answer remained the same. They would not heed me, for they thought I was raved. Thankfully, after ten days with no word from Bly, her editor sent a lawyer to spring for her from the rat trap. Safely back in Manhattan, Bly filed a two-part illustrated expose, the first called Behind Asylum Bars and the second Inside a Madhouse, published in the New York World in 1887. The article was syndicated across the country and horrifying the public and forcing politicians to do something about it. The Manhattan DA convened a grand jury to investigate and Bly testified, leading juries, jurors on a tour of the island, which had been rapidly scrubbed into shape but there was only so much Blackwell Island could cover up. In the end, thanks to this young reporter's courage, the Department of Public Charities and Corrections agreed to a nearly 60% increase in the annual budget for the care of the inmates. All right, 
very cool. Let's take a little break. Get right back into it. All right, we go over to Washingtonian.com where they have an article, I spent the night in a haunted asylum and I still can't explain what I saw. Written by Marissa Cascino. I rolled into Weston, West Virginia as the sun began to sink, making the lush Appalachian hills appear to glow. A century and a half ago, the area's beauty appealed to social reformers convinced of the healing powers of fresh air and rural landscapes. But even against the bucolic backdrop, the Gothic-style mental hospital they built here looks like a figment of Stephen King's imagination come to light. The Trans-Algheny Lunatic Asylum, now widely considered one of the most haunted destinations in America, operated from 1864 to 1994. Although it was des or designed for 250 patients, about 2,400 crammed in, which gave me pause when I arrived for my overnight ghost hunt. Was I exploiting their suffering, or was I validating it? After all, it seems few people cared about their pain while they were alive. Just in case, I said a silent apology to any ghost offended by my presence. The current owner launched the ghost tours to raise money for ongoing restoration. There's a 90-minute daytime tour, a two-hour nighttime tour, and the most intense option, the one I chose, a 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. hunt. I expected to be joined by hardcore paranormal investigators weighed down with camera gear and digital recorders, and there were some, but there were also a preppy older couple, a mom chaperoning tween girls, and a grandma from Indiana named Julia and her skeptical son-in-law. Those two became my friends for the night. We broke into smaller groups, spending two hours in each of the asylum's four floors before rotating. Our guide told us about some of the hospital's better-known spirits, including a little girl named Lily, who was born in the asylum, a man named Jesse, who died of a heart attack in a bathtub, Civil War soldiers, and a patient who was brutally murdered by his roommates. On each floor, she gave us the lay of the land before turning us loose to explore. The hospital was so vast that it was easy to end up alone, despite the dozens of other people wandering around. It was also easy to feel lost amid the maze of hallways and patient rooms covered in peeling paint. Julia and I set up in a room allegedly haunted by the spirit named Jim James. We placed a mag light on the floor and asked Jim to turn it on. The light was Julia's, but I inspected it, and it seemed totally ordinary. A few beats passed, then it came on, by itself. I offered Jim a cigarette to turn it back off. It went dark. I don't smoke, but our guide gave me a couple of cigarettes because she said some spirits like them. We tried the flashlight trick again and again, and in a room where Lily supposedly plays, in a pitch black corridor, once reserved for violent women, in a lobotomy recovery area without luck. Even so, exploring the crumbling building and learning its history were plenty thrilling enough, ghosts or no ghosts. By 4.30 a.m., I was ready to go. As I drove away, I thought about whether I actually believe. I've actually been fascinated by ghosts, but am I convinced they exist? 
Honestly, no. Maybe Jim James did turn the flashlight on. Or maybe there's some mechanical explanation. I just don't know. And what's more exciting than the unknowable? We go over to Ranker, where there is an article, Creepy Stories from the Psych Ward, or from the Psych Ward Workers, by Duke Harton. Psych Ward stories have a spooky glamour to them, unmatched by any other spine-tingling tale. Haunted mental hospitals, spirits in captivity, sadistic or sadistic nurses and orderlies, it's enough to make the hardiest of hearts consider a nightlight. Many consider abandoned mental hospitals to be scary or straight out of a horror story, but based on the stories from actual psych work workers, the ones still populated with patients are far worse. Number one, patient gouges out own eyes. My mom told me this story from her time at a neuropsychiatric ward where she was when she was in grad school she was making her routine room checks and happened upon the most horrific scene i've ever heard this was during the night shift and generally all the patients bedrooms should be closed so my mom turned a corner and noticed an open door she saw a staff member's legs on the floor halfway out of the door when she looked into the room she saw that the patient a woman with severe postpartum psychiatric disorder who had just gouged both of her own eyes out with her bare hands. She was sitting cross-legged on the floor, holding her eyes in her hands. The first staff member to witness the scene, who was now laying face down on the floor, had had a heart attack when he first witnessed the woman while she was making the round, while he was making his rounds. My mom screamed for help and frantically tried to perform CPR on the staff member. All the while, the woman just sat there rather calmly, holding her own eyes. Number two, Jane may be possessed. We had a young lady in our custody for quite a few issues. We'll call her Jane. On Jane's first night at our facility, staff performing a bed check found Jane in a puddle of blood. Turns out Jane had been slicing the skin. Um, Jane had been slicing the skin around her shin with her fingernails and was pulling her skin up her leg essentially degloving her calf. Jane also had a ritual she performed every night before bed. While in her room, she would walk to every wall, touch them in a crucifix pattern. After doing this for hours, she would sit on her bed and go to sleep. One night, Jane's pace was frantic. Our night staff observed the entire interaction and reported Jane screaming late into the night. When one staff member went to check on Jane, she reported Jane standing in the doorway, smiling. The staff asked what's wrong, and Jane replied, What makes you think you're speaking to Jane? Oof, that one would, no, I could not. I'd be like, get in your room, I'm gonna lock you in. Oh my gosh. Alright, number three. Patient is too hot for teacher. I was a pharmacy tech at a hospital with a psych ward for some time. We would go around with a cart and dispense the patient's medications. And being a 5'2 girl, a security guard or male nurse would accompany me, just as a precaution. I never had any real issue other than the occasional death grip on my arm or manic outburst. But there was one boy who was entirely different. His chart said he was 9, and he had pale skin, dark hair, huge, bright green eyes. He 
always greeted me in the most polite way, asked how I was doing, and always found something different to compliment me on every time. He was extremely well-spoken and mature for his age, so I began looking forward to seeing him. As normal small talk is definitely cherished in that setting, if he saw me outside his room in the halls, he made sure to say hello and always called me Miss Jones or ma'am. One day, a couple of our female nurses saw me pause to chat with him in the hallway and waved me over to ask if I was out of my mind. Apparently, when he was in kindergarten, he grew an intense attachment to his young female teacher. This escalated to the point of him calling her mom and leaving notes for her about he, how he wished he were her son. He had a normal home life with both parents, and the teacher tried to explain to him that she couldn't be his mom because that would hurt his real mother's feelings, and she already had that job covered. So he went home and killed his own mother in her sleep by cutting her throat so his teacher could be his mom. The female staff had a general rule of not interacting with him excessively to prevent any kind of attachment from forming. Number four, patient issues disturbing warning about abduction. I was working in an overnight shift at an Alzheimer's ward at a nursing home. It was about 2.30 a.m. and I was making my rounds, peeking into the rooms to make sure the patients were where they should be. I went into one room and this 83-year-old woman was sitting straight up in her bed, staring at the wall. I slowly walked into the room and calmly asked if she wanted to lie back down. She turned her head slowly, looked me right in the eye and said, They're coming for you, dear. Then started laughing. I'm talking full-on, hysterical, insane cackling. I almost pissed myself right there. She finally calmed down and I got her to lie back down. When she was just about to go to sleep, she looked at me again and said, I'm going to miss you when they take you. And then went right back to sleep. I was terrified for the rest of the night. Number five, old lady speaks in tongues. When I first started working at the hospital, I was sitting with this sweet little old woman. I had sat with her talking about her family and such for about six hours. Towards the end of my shift, about 9 p.m., they decided she didn't need to have her heart monitor, so they transferred her to a different unit. Once we got to the new room, she started acting differently, just generally angry, I would say. Then all of a sudden, she tried to jump out of bed, a big no-no at hospitals. So I immediately got up to stop her. She started screaming bloody murder about her how her house was on fire and her family was inside and she needed to get them out. And I tried to calm her down, but to no avail. She started yelling at me about how I'm going to rot in the flames of hell because God told her so and how I was responsible for her family's death. Staring deep into my eyes, she told me all about how I will burn in eternal flames and how I am filled, or filled with evil. I thought, okay, at least she isn't worried about her family or trying to get out of bed. But then she started screaming at the top of her lungs in what I can only describe as Latin or maybe even gibberish. She then ripped out her dentures and threw them at me, pulled all the skin on her face back into a long stretched out creepy smile she let out a blood curdling scream while i while her eyes rolled back in her head like some sort of possession scene in a movie just as she let up my relief came into the room i wished her luck and booked it out of there the second i got off the unit i called my mom and cried for a good 15 minutes 
I still think of her stretched out face sometimes. That is so creepy. Number six, pilot with amnesia could be a human experiment. I work in an ER, and due to my country and the state's poor mental health system, we see acute psychotic episodes daily. Over time, you get desensitized to it, but there's still one that turns my stomach. A guy was found in a burning abandoned building. He wasn't hurt, but was acting so strange the paramedics brought him in. He was homeless, had no ID, did not know his name, and had zero drugs in his system. Looking into his eyes, you could tell he wasn't seeing the same thing I was. So I'm trying to get his name or anything out of him, and he keeps telling me he was a pilot for the Air Force and flew experimental airplanes because he could not, or because he could withstand the G-force and his blood was naturally thin. The blood tests that measure this actually were fairly higher than normal, but not elevated to the point he was on medication for it, so he was right on that account. I was at the desk telling a coworker about this guy, about the stuff he was saying, when a resident overheard me. He was a former Air Force as well, and looked like he had seen a ghost. As soon as I mentioned the name of the base, the doctor freaked out. He said, that city base has no roads, in or out, and a lot of top secret testing goes down there. He said that you don't know about it unless you've been there. He told me not to talk about it or make it a big deal. That gave me an even weirder vibe. Number eight, patient predicts own deaths. Well, my mother was a nurse that specialized in geriatrics and she worked for several hospice hospitals over the year. She described situations at her work with several of the patients. She would say that each person tends to have a similar checklist that they follow right before death. The checklist often ended in a very similar way. They would get caught talking to someone that wasn't there. When asked who they, otherwise lucid people, were talking to, they would describe an individual who was already dead. When asked what they were talking about, they would say their relative wanted to know if they were ready to move on. A pretty common response would be, yeah. He or she said that she will take me tomorrow at three. Well, it would often happen that they would die at the exact time that their relatives quoted to them. Number nine, sleep talker communes with the dead. My clients have dementia, and there's one who creeps me out a lot. During the day, she's the sweetest old lady, but at night, she sleep talks. And it's not normal sleep talking. Her eyes are open, and sometimes she's sitting up. Sometimes it's impossible to tell when she has gone from sleeping to being awake. Until she turns to you and asks if you've seen the little girl that was just there, the one she was talking to. She talks about people being there all the time, including a little boy that died. She wonders what we should do with the body. She mentions a little girl that sleeps with her, a man that orders her around, and her dead husband who is always looking for her. I heard her talking once, and she was being very loud, and I reached the open doorway, and she says, Shh, they're all sleeping. Better not talk about it now. And then she promptly stopped talking and just lay there very still. Number 10. Sometimes it's scariest when they make sense. I had an hour-long conversation with the delusional guy who was confined to a mental health facility 
and was probably smarter than I am. Lots of these folks believe that somebody, often the CIA, is either beaming thoughts into their heads or has implanted a microchip in their brains for this purpose. This guy was offering a very thoughtful argument as to why such claims should not be so quickly dismissed. It is precisely because some such delusions are so common that mental patients make the best test subjects, he said. There he was, confined and protected and constantly observed, his health and behavior documented, and there is zero chance that anyone would ever take his concern seriously. How else would you test or improve such technology? Does the government not have a strong motivation or plausible ability to create such a device? You, you can see I'm not irrational, the man said. I'm just straight up telling you that that is what they're doing. That is, that is what they're doing to me. I know just how unbelievable it sounds, yet here I am. Number 11. Manic patient lusts after doctor. I was an intern psychologist finishing up my training. A mid-twenties woman with bipolar 1 was in a manic phase, and hypersexuality was one of her symptoms. She was desperate to have sex and was propositioning all the male staff. She finally removed her underwear, snuck up on one of the psychiatrists, a very formal man in his late 60s, wrapped her underwear around his face and her body around him in a bear hug and started screaming that he should smell her scent and get ready for the ride of his life. The underwear was, ew, soaked in period blood and after three of us managed to pull her off, his beard and hair were covered in blood. One of the scariest things I've ever seen. That's disgusting. Alright, number 12. Notes under the bed. Once, a fellow female patient told me she found writing under her bed. There were just old, small wooden bed frames with hard mattresses that would make all kinds of noises when you rolled over, but I still wondered what exactly she was doing lying under the bed to find these writings. When she first told me, I thought it was a joke, but sure enough, one day during group, we managed to sneak away, and she showed me. Indeed, there were stories written under the bed. After that, we had everyone check under their own beds, and there was more writing under every single bed. There were stories of patients who had stayed here before, or ways they were planning on killing themselves, or who the good and bad nurses were. It really creeped me out. Number 13. Stephen King Delusion Leads to Creepy Encounter Once I was volunteering at a hospital, and sitting with the patients who might harm themselves, while waiting for doctors or nurses to show up, I was sitting with one man, maybe mid-thirties, who thought he was in a Stephen King novel. At first, he thought I was his psychologist because I was holding a clipboard while talking to him. So he was telling me all about his thoughts and would ask my opinion. Trying not to upset him and make him snap, I went along with it, nodding, and when he asked my opinion, I would turn the question around and ask him what he thought about it. This worked until the last hour of my shift. Then he looked at me and said, you, you can be the next messiah. Come here and let me teach you. He patted the bed beside him. I politely declined to sit near him. He then went silent for a moment and said, I see. With that, he started taking off his oxygen, his heart monitor, and his IV. I asked him why he was doing these things, and he looked at me and said, 
I can go now. My task is complete. You will not accept my training, and now I can die in peace knowing I tried. Once the nurse showed up, I made my escape. Number 14. Mom misses her daughter. Since the psych ward was out of rooms, I had to spend my last couple days sleeping in the corridor. First, one of the patients from the so-called screened part of the ward barged in the corridor, grabbed one of the corridor patients, and began jabbering on about her parrot. She was then taken back to her room, and the nurses finished their coffee. Then the screaming started. In the room next to me, an elderly psychotic lady started at first talking to her dead daughter, sometimes comf comforting her, telling her how much she loved her, and so on. After a while, though, she got angry and started blaming her dead daughter for everything, from burning the porridge to killing her. A lot of it was incoherent, crying and babbling. After a while, I asked the orderlies to have my bed moved. The bird is real. I once knew a woman who had spent part of her residency at a psychiatric hospital for people with severe mental conditions. Apparently, the grounds had lovely enclosed greenhouse. One day, one of their schizophrenic patients was sitting on a bench, smoking a cigarette, as a heron frantically flew about. It had found its way in, and not being able to escape, it was smashing into the large panes of glass. The man just sat there watching. Finally, my counselor asked him if the bird was bothering him, and he kind of sighed and said, Thank God, I thought I was the only one seeing that. Alright, very cool article from Ranker. Uh, let's take a short break and then get right back in it after this. All right, so we go over to Thought Catalog, where they have an article, 17 Frightening Stories of Abandoned Hospitals and Asylums, as told by Urban Explorers and Security Guards by Hawk Leasim. All right, a lot of these are found from Reddit and put together for this article. Number one, Watchmen at an Abandoned Mental Hospital. I was the night watchman at an abandoned mental hospital turned state park for a summer in college. The only creepy thing that happened was one night I was with one of the state park police and we saw flashlights in one of the buildings. Kids constantly broke in and other people broke in to gut the old building of any copper they could find. So as I was saying one night, we saw flashlights moving around so we went in. The officer pulled her gun and flashlight and in we went. We could hear footsteps on the floor above us, and we slowly and quietly went upstairs. We checked every room and found nothing. Then we heard footsteps above us again. This happened for a few floors until we were on the top floor below the roof. We heard footsteps up on the roof, so we went up there. Still nothing. We never found anyone or any indication that anyone had been in there. It was really creepy. Number two. Exploring an Insane Asylum When I was a teenager, 20 years ago, my friends and I trespassed on a condemned insane asylum called Eloise in south southeastern Michigan. The worst thing wasn't that it was at night with crappy flashlights, the dirty patient records scattered on the floor, 
the broken furniture, the torn up walls, the leaking water pipes, or the huge fungal bloom from the leaking water. The worst part was finding a tunnel and following it to a place inside where power was still on. There was a light, an ominous looking double doors, and an active security camera. It was like, why is this here? What's going on? Later on, I found out that the asylum and nearby hospital were connected. However, the Wikipedia page says it closed in 1984, but we were there several years after that. I think I saved one of the patient records somewhere. Alright, number three, exploring ruins. When I was in high school, living in Seattle, ghost hunting or visiting abandoned places was a frequent activity for us. There is a place north of Seattle called 13 Steps to Hell. The story is that a satanic family once lived in a house where they had a cemetery deep in their backyard. These stones dated back at least 100 years. The family built 13 steps into the cemetery with two giant pointed pillars at the top. Supposedly, each step down would give you hallucinations. You would hear things, feel things, and on the final step, you would see fire from hell. The steps continued to be bulldozed because the current residents surrounding the area probably do not appreciate late night visitors, but the steps always seem to reappear. I've seen them. Our first journey, it took us nearly four hours of driving and walking to find it. There are no clear directions anywhere online, at least at that time. We accidentally stumbled upon a path just as we were about to give up. It's, it is about a mile hike deep in the woods. Along the overgrown trail, you have a lot of barriers to duck under and over, and there are a lot of random things everywhere, such as crash cars in the middle of the woods, abandoned items as well. After 30 minutes of hiking in the creep, creepy darkness of this overgrown forest, we were going to head back when my, print, when my friend pointed at me and said, Look where you're standing! I looked down and I was unknowingly standing between the pillars and on the first step down to the cemetery. At that point, I was not going to walk down the steps, but I did explore the cemetery. My friends explored further down and started yelling and screaming. They told us stop scaring them, even though we were at least 200 feet away from them. We left promptly after they ran up and insisted we leave. Never talked about it again. I went back five times after with friends who had heard and I was the only one who knew how to get there, so I gladly took them. Nothing creepy happened on those trips. One year later, some friends asked me to take them. We went at midnight one evening and went there, looked around the cemetery, nothing out of the ordinary. I went down to the cemetery and rubbed one of the gravestones, so much I could read it. Some satanic symbol. We were standing in the middle, or in the circle, debating how much longer we would stay, when all of a sudden, a three-foot log comes flying at us and lands in the middle of the circle. We all look around, notice no one from the group is missing, so it wasn't any of our friends. Thirty seconds later, all of this shit is flying at us. I look at them and we say, run. We started running back through the overgrown trails with logs, branches, rocks, etc. being thrown at us. I've never ran so fast in my whole life. At one point, my friend looks back and sees two giant yellow eyes after us, and all we heard were growling noises running around after us. 
ducking under fallen trees and running through sticker bushes and falling several times, we run to get the car in, drive, and drive away as fast as possible. None of us said a word to each other for at least an hour, and I've never been back since then. Number four, schoolhouse turned residential housing. My mother-in-law's house is pretty creepy. Lived there for a little over a year. When me and my wife were younger, built in something like 1900. It was originally a schoolhouse, but turned residential after World War II. A few of my wife's stories are pretty chilling. Standing in front of the house to the left, there's a shed or garage. About 90 feet behind that, a large barn. She claims every so often she would look to the top of the barn and notice a bright light, even though that area of the barn was cut off due to the access door being nailed shut. Her mother went to investigate, found no sign of squatters, only a load of spiders and a raccoon's nest. Once the large stereo in the living room kept turning on, thinking it was the remote malfunctioning, she took the batteries out, but it still kept coming on. She claims that she unplugged the stereo. The display was still flickering on and off for four to five minutes. There was also the time my mother's music box got inexplicably wound and started playing at 2.30 a.m. She wound it, wrapped it in a towel, and shoved it into the drawer. Two weeks later, it happened again. I once heard a woman scream, get out, while feeding my son. He was fresh out of the hospital when we were on the bed watching TV. I had him on my chest and my back to the wall, and the bedroom door was shut. All of a sudden, I hear a woman scream, get out. I placed my son in his crib and ran downstairs, thinking her aunt, who we were living with at the time, was in sort of trouble. I get downstairs and find all the lights off, my aunt's asleep in her bed, and nobody else there. Also regularly heard children running, though my son at the time wasn't old enough to walk. One time in particular, heard what sounded like a large group of children coming up the stairs, laughing hysterically at something. Number five, an old jail tour. My two friends and I visited an old jail a local company did regular tours. The jail used to regularly keep women and children there, and there were a lot of deaths, especially in the winter. During our tour, my friend and I went inside one of the cells just as the tour group moved along to the next section of the jail. We were making stupid jokes, but the vibe was super creepy. We finally decided to catch up, except we were locked in. Nobody was there to do it. The group had moved on before we entered completely, and the doors were not self-locking. Someone would have had to push the bolts across from the outside, and we couldn't get out. We ended up having to shout for help to have someone come set us free. Almost 10 years later, none of us have an, any idea of what happened. Alright, number 6, in a funeral home. I used to pick up dead bodies for a funeral home. One stormy night, I was in one of the coolers putting a guy on the shelf. In a matter of a couple seconds, the following happened. The guy on the shelf shifted, and his hand fell down in my face. The door stop slipped, and the cooler door closed behind me. The power went off, and the lights went off. All purely coincidental, but I still puked in my pants. Alright, abandoned nurse or nun's home. My dad worked at a mental hospital. 
that used to be connected to an abandoned nun's home by underground passage. He says that one night he was walking down there when he saw a praying nun. He walked by her and said hello. She did not acknowledge him. My dad does not believe in ghosts, but he says there was a nun down there that night. I've definitely read that story before. Number eight. This is an incredible story. I wasn't able to sleep, so I figured I'd try a night job at this sleep clinic as a security guard. They offered the job and I accepted straight away. Filled in a couple of forms and that was that. It seemed perfect. I was, if I was going to be awake anyway, I might as well get paid for it. I got into the swing of things right away. It wasn't difficult. My duties consisted mainly of walking through softly carpeted halls every hour or so, checking the security doors were locked, helping myself to as many free cups of coffee as I could. There were also always two nurses on call in case of a medical emergency, but they mostly slept through their shifts, so I barely saw them. My contact with the patients was limited. There seemed to be perhaps 15 or 20 of them, with some there for extended periods and others coming and going almost on a daily basis. I only ever saw them when they were asleep. It was a strange seeing them like that, robbed of all context. They could have been bankers or beggars for all I knew. In the staff room, watching over half-drunk remnants of other people's coffee and deer dog-eared magazines, was a bank of CCTV monitors wired up to the patient's room, so the staff could keep an eye on them whenever they needed to. I spent most of my time there when I wasn't patrolling the corridors. It was oddly relaxing to watch all these strangers peacefully sleeping, in their beds throughout the night, stirring gently every so often as they dreamed their unknown dreams. It gave, gave me great comfort to watch them all lying there, dead to the world, with me their silent custodian. Then there were the sleepwalkers. Oh, that would drive me crazy. Alright. The clinic had a policy of leaving them to their own devices as much as possible, provided they weren't in any immediate danger, which they never were. The windows were bolted, made of toughened glass, and all exterior doors were securely locked. I used to come across them in the halls and corridors, strange lost souls acting out their own private, intangible dream roles, murmuring to themselves while they performed odd and unintelligible actions. One night, I was walking down the usual corridor, the faint sounds of snoring echoing through the air like waves rising and falling on a beach, when I came across one of the usual sleepwalkers, a middle-aged man, swollen and red-faced, wearing powder blue pajamas and incongruous pink dressing gown that flapped open as he walked. He seemed utterly oblivious to the world around him. As I approached, however, he stopped dead in his tracks and turned to face the wall, standing as motionless as a statue, with his face only millimeters away from the pastel-shaded brickwork. A dry, papery voice emanated from him as I paused, or as I passed. You're going to do a terrible thing. I stopped myself and gazed bemused at the thinning hair of the back of his round head. I'm sorry? You're going to do a terrible thing, he repeated in the same thousand-year-old voice. Are you talking to me? There is no one else here. Well, that was true. But usually the sleepwalkers were too wrapped up in their own nocturnal preoccupations to register other people, let alone speak directly to them. 
There's something of a novelty. My curiosity was piqued. What do you mean? You're going to do a terrible thing, he repeated. And there will be no one to blame but yourself. Well, that was cheery. We should probably get you back to bed. The man gave a little chuckle. It sounded like phlegmy and unpleasant, like dark bubbles popping in tar. Ew. What do you think you're doing here? It was my turn to laugh. I work here, looking after you guys. You really think you can just walk into a job like that off the street, in a medical facility of all places? There was no way he could have known that. The back of his head was implacable as ever. It's not very plausible, is it? In fact, when you think about it, nothing about this place really adds up. You really haven't thought this through? I was just staring. The nameless muzzock simpering on the background. Perhaps I was hallucinating again. I have to go, I mumbled, unsure of what else to do. My palms pricked with sweat. I walked on down the corridor, breathing an inward sigh of relief. That was strange. The sleepwalkers were usually placid and uncommunicative, locked in their own private little worlds. This man had been downright confrontational. I walked down to the staff room, my head fog of speculation and confusion. I was surprised to see one of the nurses seated at the table, a fresh cup of mud-brown coffee steaming in front of her. She had her back to me. The patients are lively tonight, I said. You can't hide from things forever. It was the same exact voice echoing through the softly furnished room. Sooner or later, you'll have to face reality. The longer you leave it, the worse it will be. It felt as though an electric shock had jangled through my body. I ran around the table to face her, and when I did, I found that her eyes were closed, and she wore the sanguine expression of someone lost in deep, dreamless sleep. Just then, the bank of TV screens on the wall began fizzled and cracked, lightening up the cramped little room for a brief flare of flash of lightning behind a dark cloud. I turned to face them and found only static bleeding into the room from every and each screen. But one by one, the picture flickered into life of each monitor, each showing a different scene of grainy black and white. It took me a moment to resolve the overexposed images into recognizable shapes and figures. In each screen, the camera gave a first-person perspective of someone moving jerkily through an unidentifiable scene, sometimes a hallway or corridor, sometimes a busy city street. All at once, every screen exploded into action, a flurry of manic movement lurching drunkenly this way and that. In this chaos of motion, I could see people wide-eyed and panic-stricken, their mouths open in silent screams, staring at the camera in horror, with their eyes fleeing in abject terror. Here and there, a hand could be on the screen, the, fa the hand of faceless protagonist, and each screen the unmistakable flash of large knife cut through hazy images. My stomach lurched as my eyes flicked from screen to screen, finding one scene of random carnage after another. The blade swung and stabbed and slashed, biting into flesh with sickening regularity. Black gouts of blood welled from every wound as the unknown assailant plowed his way through victim after victim. Somehow, 
The grainy, low-resolution images lent a further reality to these grim, brutal vignettes, and I felt each and every thrust of the knife with a visceral twist in my guts. My eyes settled for a second on one particular screen, a confusing tumult of grays and blacks that resolved into a stark scene of bloody violence in a dingy vestibule as I fixed my attention on it. As I watched, the camera lurched past a battery door with a grimy stained glass window set into it. For an instant, a reflected blur of the protagonist was caught in that window. The camera froze and then panned in on that image. It was a face, the reflection of a face. I looked to another monitor, a street scene, streaked with blood in the gutters and bodies strewn about on the sidewalk. The chrome of a parked car threw an image back the camera, which instantly halted and zoomed in on it. The same face, stark, washed out by low-quality film. My eyes darted from screen to another, and in each of the same things happened. The movement ceased, the monitor filled with a single image taken from a small refle reflection in a puddle or pane of glass. Soon, every one of the bank monitors was displaying the same thing from a multiple of different angles. A single face, the features all but erased in a blurry white mass, but still recognizably and irre irrevocably mine. As soon as I came to this realization, the screens all instantly snapped to black, and the nameless music tinkled on in the background as I struggled to take in what I had just seen. Nothing seemed to make sense anymore. The sleep clinic had been my own private cocoon, like a warm and comfortable wound, which had taken me in and shielded me from the storms of insomnia, but now, even the walls around me and the soft carpet under my feet seemed unreal and intangible as a dream. I'd never felt more lost, adrift in a sea of doubt, uncertainty, and overwhelming confusion. The sun had started to rise, my shift would be over soon, and it would be time to leave, to venture out into the real world again. As if in a trance, I moved over to the area of the staff room that served as a makeshift kitchen for preparing snacks and ready meals. I opened a drawer and found what I was looking for, a long, sharp kitchen knife, shiny and barely used. It felt reassuringly cool in my hand, solid and substantial, a silver slash of reality that could cut through the fog of insubstantiality that surrounded me. It fitted snugly into my pocket. And without another thought, I slipped out into the dawn of a brand new day. Now I'm back at this sleep clinic again. It's hard to imagine ever leaving. I still don't sleep, but that's okay. I get the feeling there are some terrible nightmares awaiting me on the other side of sleep. On the other side of these welcoming walls. So I'm happy to stay here and just wait them out. I pad silently down the softly furnished corridors through the long halls of night the tuneless music tinkling away in the background like a babbling brook, safeguarding the slumbering patients from whatever terrors their dreams may hold for them. The voice comes back every now and then, but it's not. But it's easier for me to ignore it now. After all, I know what's real and what's not, and it's easier for me to hold on to that now. Easier by the hour. Wow, that one was really long and complicated, and I had no idea where it was going. <laughs> all right. See, all right. This one explored an abandoned mental hospital for a, to film a movie. 
I broke into an abandoned mental hospital to film a movie with some of my friends. It wasn't a ghostly presence that made it creepy, just the atmosphere. Old, rusted-out cribs, stains on walls, asbestos falling down like snow. The place had a documentary, or had documented history of patient abuse and overcrowding. In the 60s, you could get thrown into state facilities relatively easy. Many of my friends are being treated for mental conditions, and it really freaked me out that some of them had been born 40 years previously. They would have been subject subjected to the same kind of issues. All right. Very cool. All right. I think that's all for that one. Oh, wait. Here's one more. There's this abandoned mental hospital in my town called Prudho Hospital, which is sort of the scary place kids go to show bravado. It's surrounded by wood, so obviously you hear lots about it. You hear lots of stories from people after it was abandoned, but the spookiest things come from when it was still in service. My mom worked as an auxiliary nurse there for years, and she said at night, the crippled kids who couldn't move due to severe disease and birth defects would somehow get out of their cribs and into the middle of the floor of, on the wards. Whatever doing this, whatever was doing this would also go around and remove blankets from all the patients and again pile them in the center of the room. Eventually, security was hired, believing it was someone getting into the hospital at night and doing all these things to scare people or just to be trouble. However, even with security, they found out, they never found out who was doing these things at night. All right, we go over to NPR where they have a four minute listen or this article that they wrote, Haunted House Has Painful Past as Asylum by Jamie Tarabay. The former institution for the mentally and physically disabled located outside of Philadelphia is the site of new Halloween attraction. The sprawling Penhurst State School and Hospital was shut down in 1987 after years of chronic overcrowding and patient abuse. Now a businessman has turned the property into a haunted house. The move has upset people who says it trivializes the suffering of those who live there. One quote says, I saw things that I will never forget. Penhurst became an institution to care for the feeble-minded. For years, it operated under appalling conditions, and no one noticed. Bill Baldini was a young reporter for the local Channel 10 television station when he got a tip and made it out to Chester County to see the institution. He soon returned with a camera crew, and we start shooting, and my crew was mortified. I mean, I had trouble keeping them on the job because they were literally getting sick from what they saw, Baldini says. His five-part series aired on local television in Philadelphia in 1968. The report showed images of naked, emaciated residents swaying back and forth to their own internal rhythms and curled up into balls. Children were tied to their beds. To this day, Baldini cannot forget. Think of a ward of infants and children from ages six months to five years old. There are like 80 of them in metal cages. They had to attend to them every day, all day. These people are literally lying in their own feces for days. Jim Conroy, a medical sociologist, arrived at Penhurst a few years later to research developmental disabilities. I drove up 
1970 in my dad's blue Chevy, and I saw the place with 3,700 people in it that was built for far, far fewer. And I saw things that I will never forget, Conroy says. Both Baldini and Conroy say the site should become a memorial to the past, not a haunted house. A thrilling experience. On a recent Friday night, dozens of people wound their way up to the entrance of Pinhurst's former administrative building and paid up to $50 to enter. First, visitors entered a museum featuring photos and information about the institution. Then they entered the haunted house, which is filled with gruesome props, bloody dental patients, parts of an original morgue. The last walk is through the underground tunnel system that used to connect the buildings. Screams filled the seemingless endless stretch of utter darkness. Vid visitors emerged to the sounds of local heavy metal bands. Scott Clower, 19, drove up from Delaware with his friends. He says Penhurst was known to be scary before there was ever a haunted house. A lot of people believe the spirits of people who suffered and died in the institution are still here. A lot of people feel that way. I mean, that definitely adds to the thrill of it, Clower says. His friend, Cecily Connell, says that the experience was awesome, but if the haunted house had been in one of the buildings where the residents actually lived, she probably would not have gone in. You're not in the actual area where it all went down. I think that's a bit, little bit sadder and should be left like that, Connell says. The businessman behind the venture is Richard uh, Chekajin. He says that when he bought the 110-acre property two years ago, it was in ruins. He now runs a local recycling business and hopes to make the haunted house a yearly Halloween event. We went well out of our way to make sure that this doesn't mock or mimic anything of the handicapped, and I believe that the public that comes through here know the distinction and the difference between making fun of something and a Halloween event. Right, it looks like at least 17,000 people attended the haunted house open late September. Um, yeah, a bunch of people think it should be a memorial. Let's see. Let's take a break and close it out. All right. To close out this episode, I found an article from the Washington Post that I wanted to read to you guys. Um, it does have to do with psychiatry, but also a bit of spooky. All right. Let's jump right into it. This again comes from the Washington Post. It was written by Richard Gallagher. It says, as a psychiatrist, I diagnose mental illness. Also, I help spot demonic possession. In the late 1980s, I was introduced to a self-styled satanic high priestess. She called herself a witch and dressed the part with flowing dark clothes and black eyeshadow around her temples. In our many discussions, she acknowledged worshiping Satan as his queen. I am a man of science and a lover of history. After studying the classics at Princeton, I trained in psychiatry at Yale and psychoanalysis at Columbia. The background is why a Catholic priest had asked my professional opinion, which I offered pro bono about whether this woman was suffering from a mental disorder. This was at the height of the national panic about Satanism, or the Satanic Panic. 
In a case that helped induce the hysteria, Virginia McMartin and others had recently been charged with alleged satanic ritual abuse at Los Angeles preschool. The charges were later dropped. So I was inclined to skepticism, but my subject's behavior exceeded what I could explain with my training. She could tell some people their secret weaknesses, such as undue pride. She knew how individuals she'd never known had died, including my mother and her fatal case of ovarian cancer. Six people later vouched to me that during her exorcisms, they heard her speak multiple languages, including Latin, completely unfamiliar to her outside of her trances. This was not psychosis. It was what I can only describe as paranormal ability. I concluded that she was possessed. Much later, she permitted me to tell her story. The priest who had asked for my opinion in this bizarre case was the most experienced exorcist in the country at the time, an erudite and sensible man. I had told him that even as a practicing Catholic, I wasn't likely to go in for a lot of hocus pocus. Well, he replied, Unless we thought you were not easily fooled, we would hardly have wanted you to assist us. So began an unlikely partnership. For the past two and a half decades and over several hundred consultations, I heard clergy from multiple denominations of faith to filter episodes of mental illness, which represent the overwhelming majority of cases, from literally the devil's work. It's an unlikely role for an academic physician but I don't see the two aspects of my career in conflict. The same habits that shape what I do as a professor and a psychiatrist, open-mindedness, respect for evidence, and compassion for suffering people, led me to aid in the work of discerning attacks by what I believe are evil spirits, and just as critically, differentiating these extremely rare events from medical conditions. It is possible to be sophisticated psychiatrists and believe that evil spirits are, however sailing, seldom, assailing humans. Most of my scientific colleagues and friends say no, because their frequent contact with patients who are deluded about demons, their general skepticism of supernatural, and their commitment to employ only standard, peer-reviewed treatments that do not potentially mislead or harm vulnerable patients. But careful observation of the evidence presented me in my career has led me to believe that certain extremely uncommon cases can be explained no other way. The Vatican does not track global or countrywide exorcism, but in my experience, and according to the priests I meet, demand is rising. The United States is home to about 50 stable exorcists, those who have been designated by bishops to combat demonic events activity on a semi-regular basis, up from just 12 a decade ago, according to the Reverend Vincent Lampert, an Indianapolis-based ex priest exorcist who is active in the International Association of Exorcists. He receives about 20 inquiries per week, double the number from when his bishop appointed him in 2005. The Catholic Church has responded by offering greater resources for clergy members who wish to address the problem. In 2010, for instance, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops organized a meeting in Baltimore for interested clergy. In 2014, Pope Francis formally recognized the IAE, 400 members of which are to convene in Rome this Octo October. 
Members believe in such strange cases because they are constantly called upon to help. I served for a time as a scientific advisor on the group's governing board. Unfortunately, not all clergy involved in this complex field are as cautious as the priests who first approached me. In some circles, there is a tendency to become overly preoccupied with putative demonic explanations and to see the devil everywhere. Fundamentalists misdiagnosis and observe or even dangerous treatments such as beating victims have sometimes occurred, especially in developing countries. This is perhaps why exorcism has a negative connotation in some quarters. People with psychological problems should receive psychological treatment. But I believe I've seen the real thing. Assaults upon individuals are classified either as demonic possessions or as the slightly more common but less intense attacks, usually called oppressions. A possessed individuals may suddenly, in a type of trance, voice statements of astonishing venom and contempt for religion, while understanding and speaking various foreign languages previously unknown to them. The subject might also exhibit enormous strength, or even the extraordinary rare phenomenon of levitation. I have not witnessed a levitation myself, but half a dozen people I work with vow that they've seen it in the course of their exorcisms. He or she might demonstrate hidden knowledge of all sorts of things, like how a stranger's loved one died, what secret sins she had committed, or even where people are at any given moment. These are skills that cannot be explained except by a special psychic or preternatural ability. I have personally encountered these rationally inexplicable features, along with other paranormal phenomena. My vantage is unusual. As a consulting doctor, I think I have seen more cases of possession than any other physician in the world. Most of the people I evaluate in this role suffer from more prosaic problems of a mental disorder or a medical disorder. Anyone even faintly familiar with mental illness knows that individuals who think they are being attacked by malign spirits are generally experiencing nothing of the sort. Practitioners see psychotic patients all the time who claim to see or hear demons. Histronic and highly suggestible individuals, such as those suffering from disassociative identity syndromes, and patients with personality disorders who are prone to misinterpret destructive feelings, in what exorcists sometimes call a pseudo-possession, via the defense mechanism of externalizing projection. But what am I supposed to make of patients who are unexpectedly starting to speak Latin? I approach each situation with initial skepticism. I technically do not make any diagnosis of possession, but inform clergy that the symptoms in question have no conceivable medical cause. I am aware of the way many psychiatrists view this sort of work. While the American Psychiatric Association has no official opinion on these affairs, the field, like society at large, is full of unpersuadable skeptics and occasionally doctrinaire materialists who are often oddly vitrolic in their opposition to all things spiritual. My job is to assist people seeking help, not to convince doctors who are not subject to suasion. Yet, I've been pleasantly surprised by the number of psychiatrists and other mental health practitioners nowadays who are open to entertaining such hypotheses. Many believe exactly what I do, 
though they may be reluctant to speak out. As a man of reason, I've had to rationalize that seemingly irrational. Questions about how a scientifically trained physician can believe such outdated and unscientific nonsense as I have been asked have a simple answer. I honestly weigh the evidence. I have been told simplistically that levitation defies the laws of gravity, and well, of course it does. We are not dealing here with a purely material reality, but with the spiritual realm. One cannot force these creatures to undergo lab studies or submit to scientific manipulation. They will also hardly allow themselves to easily be recorded by video equipment, as skeptics sometimes demand. The official Catholic catechism holds that demons are sentient and possess their own wills, as they are fallen angels. They are also craftier than humans. That is how they sow confusion and see doubt, after all. Nor does the church wish to com compromise a sufferer's privacy any more than doctors want to compromise a patient's confidentiality. Ignorance and superstition have often surrounded stories of demonic possession in various cultures, and surely many alleged episodes can be explained by fraud, chicanery, or mental pathology. But anthropologists agree that nearly all cultures have believed in spirits, and the vast majority of societies, including our own, have recorded dramatic stories of spirit possession. Despite varying interpretations, multiple depictions of same phenomena in astonishingly consistent ways offer cumulative evidence of their credibility. As a psychoanalyst, a blank rejection of the possibility of demonic attack seems logical and often wishful in nature than a careful appraisal of the facts. As I see it, the evidence of possession is like the evidence of George Washington's crossing of the Delaware. In both cases, written historical accounts with numerous sound witnesses testify to their accuracy. In the end, however, it is not an academic or dogmatic view that propelled me into this line of work. I was asked to consult about people in pain. I have often thought that if requested to help a tortured person, a physician should not arbitrarily refuse to get involved. Those to his, who dismiss the cases unwittingly prevent parties from receiving the help they desperately require, either by failing to recommend either by failing to recommend them for psychiatric treatment, which most clearly need, or by not informing their spiritual ministers that something beyond mental or other illness seemed to be the issue. For any person of science or faith, it should be impossible to turn one's back on a tormented soul. All right, very cool article. So I wanted to read that one and kind of close out my asylums and, you know, psychiatric mental disorder um, <coughs> episode uh, with that, as I truly believe that one day uh, science and spirituality will be one of the same and won't cancel each other out. Right now, we have our spiritual communities who oftentimes find themselves at odds with the scientific communities. But I do believe that one day, humankind will understand how they work together in tandem. And yeah, um, definitely thankful that I don't live in an era where I could possibly be sent to an asylum and locked up and my freedoms stripped away. Um, and live in those decrepit, uh, you know, 
situations. Um, it fascinated me how some of them started as, you know, we are doing better. We are treating them like humans. And then as soon as they were understaffed and overcrowded, it was like, okay, we can't handle this. We're going to start beating them and electroshocking them and giving them lobotomies. So I don't know. I do believe that, you know, they went a little asylum crazy in the past hundred years. Um, and this is still recent history, which is fascinating because we're thinking we're so much far advanced from oh, these decrepit asylums where we kept people in horrible conditions. But this only closed in the 90s. This closed in our lifetime. <laughs> so I think that's pretty fascinating, you know, that this is modern history. Um, and I'm very thankful that, you know, I wasn't born in a time when that would be a possibility for me. But I digress. Um, I do believe that asylums are especially creepy. Even psych wards, to me, are especially creepy, not only because of the potential religiosity where people think they're the son of God or Satan or anything like that, but also any legitimate uh, demonic possession cases probably got committed or sent to the psych ward, you know, so just the potential that stuff like that is out there uh, just blows my mind. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, I know I enjoyed making it. So be sure to follow us on the Facebook page, Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. Um, I'm currently changing the name to PS Spooky Shiz, so that's also in the title if you search for it. All right. That's all for me today, and soon I will be doing an episode on the UAP hearings and kind of doing a debrief on, you know, what the government is now saying about aliens. All right, so look forward to that, and thank you for being here, and stay spooky, my friends. <laughs>